Well, good morning, everyone. Why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles with me to uh, the New Testament, to Acts chapter 10. And in case you're a guest with us, just so you know what we're doing, we're in a series right now called Going Viral, and it's a study of uh, this ancient first century document that records how uh, the early church and um, uh, good news of God's love and grace went, as we would say, went viral spreading quickly from the streets of Jerusalem to the farthest reaches of the known world. And I want to take a, I want to take a look at chapter 10, and it's, it's, a, it's a pretty long chapter, there's a lot in it, uh, but there's some stories in there I, wa- I, want to, I want to look at. So what I'm going to do is, I'm just going to read for you a couple excerpts from it. Uh, you, can, you can follow along. Uh, I'm going to start at verse 1 in chapter 10, read down several verses, then skip a little bit forward, and so we can cover the, the essence of the story, and then we'll talk about it, Okay. So first, uh, it starts off this way, chapter 10, verse 1. We're told that at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who's called Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants, told them everything that had happened. He sent them to Joppa. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Then Cornelius explains to him the vision he had. Now he was told to send for Peter. Then Peter began to speak to the group. He said, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what happened throughout the province of Judea, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with... Uh, with the Holy Spirit and power and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because, of, because God was with him. He said, we are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He wasn't seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came upon all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. Then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Now, those of you who remember all the way back to chapter 1, 
Um, you'll remember that Jesus said to his followers, you will be my witnesses uh, in Jerusalem and in Judea and all Samaria and to the ends of the earth, right? And, and that's what we see happen in the first nine chapters of the book. The church in Jerusalem grows from a small group of believers to about 15,000 people, a majority of whom uh, in the wake of persecution leave the city and kind of venture out into the surrounding region. And as they go, they embody the, me- uh, the mission of Jesus by sharing the good news of God's love and grace, by serving the physical and spiritual needs of, uh, of people, and inviting into community those who were, who were racially and culturally different. And a lot of people from all kinds of backgrounds were coming to faith in Jesus. In fact, uh, over, the next, over the last few chapters that we've studied, um, we've seen the conversion of Jewish men and women, of Samaritans, uh, we saw an Ethiopian eunuch believe and get baptized, and last week uh, we uh, we looked at the conversion of a of an, uh, of an intense persecutor of the church, a Pharisee named Saul, who unexpectedly encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus, and his life gets changed forever. Saul put his faith in Christ, and suddenly the pursuer became the pursued, the persecutor became the persecuted. You know, he who inflicted suffering on believers began to suffer for his own belief. Well, this morning, I want to uh, examine another remarkable conversion that takes place in the life of a man named Cornelius. Now, as I mentioned last week, I realized the word conversion makes some people uneasy. Uh, for some in our culture, uh, it's an unpopular word that sounds rather uh, uh, archaic and provokes suspicion. But the word conversion simply comes from a Latin term, conversio, which means to turn around, to change, to transform. And that's what I mean, that's what happened to Saul, right? I mean, his life was completely turned around, completely changed because he put faith in Jesus. And as we noted, it's a, this is a spiritual transformation that we all must go through to be a Christian. You know, we each have to come to a defining moment of conversion, if you will, you know, turning from unbelief to belief. Uh, with that belief ultimately, ultimately changing the trajectory of our lives. Jesus once referred to it as being born anew. Uh, at another time, he said, unless you change, unless you become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So, you know, whether we're talking about um, a Samaritan's conversion or a eunuch's conversion or Saul's conversion or your conversion, my conversion, whatever, we're essentially talking about our experience of moving from not being a follower of Jesus to becoming one and the surrounding circumstances of that change, of that spiritual transformation. And here in Acts chapter, chapter 10, we have a fascinating story about a guy named Cornelius. And uh, as I mentioned already, there are a lot of details in the chapter. There's a lot I'd love to explore with you. But for the sake of time, I want to look at three particular things. I want to look at Cornelius' conversion experience, and then the lesson that Peter learned from it all, and then the message God has for all of us. So let's start with Cornelius' conversion. I mean, who was this guy? Cornelius. And um, as we've seen in studying other sections of this book, uh, what, at f- what at first appears to be a-, a few vague statements about somebody, if examined carefully, can provide an amazing amount of information. And that's true here. For example, we're told that at Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. Caesarea was and still is a coastal city in Israel located about 70 miles northwest of Jerusalem. And in the first century, it had an exceptionally high Gentile population. Today, it's only about 
there are only about 4,500 Jewish people living in Caesarea, but in the first century, it was a pretty big city. It was a coastal city. It was a commercial city, and it was just filled with Gentiles because it served as the headquarters of the Roman governor and all the Roman military forces for the region. Uh, and so it was an important commercial, governmental, and military outpost for the Romans. And uh, apparently Cornelius, who lived there, was a centurion, which means he was a soldier. Uh, he was a military commander of what was called the Italian Regiment. Uh, according to historians, uh, this regiment was composed of men who weren't only Roman citizens, but who were actually born and raised in the city of Rome itself. So they were, in the truest sense, Romans. Um, and as a centurion, uh, Cornelius would have been highly respected. Uh, centurions were considered the backbone of the Roman army. They were appointed based on merit. They were chosen uh, for their strength of mind, their deliberation, and their consistency. In fact, the ancient Greek historian Polybius describes it this way. They wished centurions not so much to be venturesome and daredevil, but as natural leaders of a steady and sedate spirit, men who will hold their ground when worsted and hard-pressed and be ready to die at their posts. So in short, centurions were, were uh, valued and, and impressive military commanders who, by the way, uh, got paid 20 times that of ordinary soldiers, which explains why Cornelius had some servants. He was a relatively wealthy guy. What else do we know? Well, we're told that, um, let's see, he and all of his family were devout and God-fearing. So obviously he was a family man and a religious one at that. Now what's interesting here is that the Roman army at the time had sort of its own religious observances. Um, they were basically these prescribed rituals that a lot of the soldiers had to go through, but a lot of soldiers just, they didn't feel like this met their spiritual needs, and so uh, many of them turned to other religions. Uh, two in particular in the first century, uh, some turned, turned to what's known as Mithraism. Mithraism was a, uh, a, a rather mysterious male-only cult that worshipped the god, the pagan god Mithras. It was said that Mithras was born from a rock and that he killed a bull. And after killing the bull, he greeted the sun with a handshake and they sat down and they ate the meat. That was the story. And um, because he was born from a rock... Uh, the followers of Mithraism met in underground caves. No one's really sure what they did in the caves uh, because it was a rather short-lived religion. It, by the uh, middle to the end of the third century, it had vanished. Uh, but uh, some of the soldiers went and they became part of Mithraism. M many more soldiers in the Roman army turned to Judaism. And that's what the phrase God-fearing refers to. It refers to a Gentile who believed in and revered the God of Israel. Um, it was a person who studied the Old Testament scriptures and tried their best to keep <clears throat> the commandments and, to, and the ritualistic practices of first century Judaism. But most God-fearing Gentiles like Cornelius uh, never fully you know, proselytized into Judaism. Uh, and so Jewish people considered them unclean, completely unclean. Uh, why didn't they go through all the steps necessary to, to actually become Jewish? Historians suggest that at least for the men in, in the Roman army, circumcision was a primary deterrent. So all that to say was is um, that Cornelius believed in the God of Israel. And he was a good person. He was a kind citizen. Uh, the text says that he gave generously to those in need and he prayed to God regularly. 
So in summary, this was a, a very successful, wealthy, respected, morally good, kind, and religiously devout family man. In fact, speaking of his devoutness, it's while he's praying at 3 o'clock in the afternoon one day that he has this vision, uh, where we're told that he distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon Peter, who's called, or Simon who's called Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. Now here's the thing. Most people who, most people who read this account focus on what the angel says, which makes sense, right? But I'm weird because what strikes me most, uh, what catches my attention is what the angel doesn't say. What do I mean? Well, clearly the angel affirms the things that we've already noted about Cornelius. He was a good religious guy. He really was. God knew that. The angel says, your prayers and gifts for the poor haven't gone, on not haven't gone unnoticed. But what the angel doesn't say is what many people would expect next. Because he doesn't say, you know, your prayers and your generosity, your kindness to the poor haven't gone unnoticed. We've seen it. And listen, man, you're an, impressive, you're an impressive individual. And because of your success and because of your piety and because of your moral goodness, you're in. Heaven is yours, man. We're looking for people like you in heaven. <laughs> We're looking for generous, kind, family-oriented, religiously disciplined, you know, people who pray and follow the rules. Just keep up the good work, man. The angel doesn't say that. Instead, Cornelius is instructed to send for Peter, this guy Peter who was in Joppa. Translation, Cornelius, you matter to God, and this man Peter has some good news God wants you to hear, and it's news you need to hear. Now, why is this significant? Well, if you think about it, more often than not, people, especially religious type people, see their relationship to God as being based on their morality on their religious performance, on how good of a person they are. Yet here we have a guy who, who is essentially told by an angel that, he's, that you're, a good, you're a good religious man, but your goodness falls short of what, of what you need. You're not perfect. You need a spiritual transformation. You need the grace of God. Um, you need a savior. And so once again, we see how how the call to spiritual transformation, at least in terms of biblical Christianity, is not a call to moral structure. It's not a call to moral systems. It's not, it's not a, about increasing one's ethical performance. I mean, seriously, Cornelius was a, he was a good guy. He had a lot going for him. And this was a legitimately good person, <clears throat> even by today's standards, right? I mean, he had a successful career, wealth, influence, family. He believed in God. He was a generous citizen, he was kind to the poor, he gave to the poor, he was religiously disciplined, prayed regularly, all of that. But if I could be so bold as to put words in the mouth of an angelic being, here's the memo. Cornelius, you're good, but not good enough. No one is. And as a God-fearing Gentile who studied the Old Testament scriptures, perhaps Cornelius' mind raced back to the words of the prophet Isaiah, who said, all of us have become like one who's unclean. All our righteous acts are like filthy rags before God. Or maybe he remembered the psalmist who writes, 
The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. And you ask, but didn't we just say, didn't we just say Cornelius was good? Yes. But the psalmist's point is that there's no one who's perfectly good all the time. No one, not even one person. And the prophet Isaiah's point is that all of our righteous acts, our religious efforts, can't make up for the fact that we are not perfectly good. And I realize that for some people, this is, this is really hard. This is not an easy thing to accept, especially those who put their hope in their own morality and their own religiosity. This is hard to accept. And frankly, I mean, frankly, we all tend to have a rather inflated opinion of our own goodness, don't we? And that opinion tends to grow more optimistic when we step back and we measure ourselves against others around us who we view as less religious, uh, not as good as we are. The result is we adopt this kind of misguided sense of superiority. But when measured against the holiness and perfection of God himself, we all fall short, all of us. How you deal with that reality is up to you, but for Cornelius, he says, well, I guess I need something more than my own goodness, and he sends for Peter. Three days later, Peter shows up, and when he arrives at Cornelius' house, Cornelius, we're told, met him and fell at his feet in reverence, which to me speaks to this person's humility. I mean, he falls down before for Peter, and Peter says, dude, stand up, I'm just, I'm just a man myself. And so Cornelius gets up, and they walk inside, and as they're talking, Peter gets introduced to all of Cornelius' friends, all of his family. They're all God-fearing Gentiles. They're all there. And at one point, Peter says to them, you guys are well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit Gentiles, right? I mean, but may I ask why you've sent for me? And so Cornelius explains the whole vision thing and what the angel told him. And then Peter listens, and, then he, he, and he recognizes the hand of God in all of this. And so he says to Cornelius, he says to the whole group, he says, you know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who's Lord of all, i.e., you've heard all about Jesus. Everybody's heard about him in the region. Everybody knows what's happened. He says, you know what's happened throughout the province of Judea, how God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. And he says, we're witnesses of of everything he did in the country of the Jews in Jerusalem. They, they killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day, caused him to be seen. He wasn't seen by everybody, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people, to testify that he's the one whom God appointed as judge of living in the dead. And Peter says, all the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. What is Peter doing? Well, he's sharing with these people the gospel, right? The good news of Jesus, news of God's love, and his offer of forgiveness. And Cornelius, along with everybody else in the room, listens, and they embrace the truth. They believe, and the Holy Spirit comes upon all of them, affirming that, yes, these Gentiles are, by way of their faith in Christ, recipients of God's grace. And then with great joy, uh, and celebration, they all start praising God together. And Peter says, hey, let's baptize everybody in, in, in the name of Jesus. And they do. And then Peter hangs out with Cornelius and Caesarea for a few days after. Here's my Reiki summary. Just as God's grace was offered to half-breed Samaritans, 
Just as God's grace was offered to an emasculated African, just as, as God's grace was offered to an intense persecutor of the church, so here it is offered to a genuinely good European Gentile soldier who was in need of forgiveness as much as anybody else. And Cornelius believes, he puts his faith in Jesus, he's converted, i.e. his life is transformed, is turned around, changed forever. Now, while this account, in many respects, is about Cornelius and all, all of his friends and family, let's not miss the fact that it is, it's also about Peter, specifically about what, what, he, what he learns through all this. See, we haven't covered the whole story in chapter 10 yet because we're told that the day after Cornelius had his vision, Peter had one as well. Right before Cornelius' servants show up at the house where Peter was staying in Joppa, Peter was up on the roof of that house praying. And according to the text, it was around noon and he was hungry and he, he suddenly falls into this sort of trance where he has this vision and he, he saw heaven open and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. And it contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Here's lunch, basically. <laughs> but keep in mind, you know, Jewish law had very, very strict stipulations on what animals were considered clean, okay to eat, and those that were unclean, not okay to eat or even touch or be around. This sheet contained both. In fact, the image of it being held by four corners uh, emphasizes how all the animals weren't just in close proximity to each other, but they were all kind of down in the sheet, writhing and squirming all over each other, snakes and pigs and birds and cows and sheep. Peter is disgusted by the whole thing. The intermingling of all these clean and unclean creatures, not to mention no distinctions being made in the command for him to eat one of them. So coming from a good Jewish background, Peter hears the word eat, and he immediately says, surely not, Lord. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean in my life. I can't do it. The clean and the unclean all together, mixed together, I can't do it. It's gross. And the voice spoke to him a second time and said, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Three times this happens. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And when the vision ends, Peter, you know, understandably, he's confused about what he just saw, what he heard, what he experienced. I mean, what was this about? Is it about some kind of new expanded Jewish diet? Or was it about something more spiritually significant? What? You know, the text says, while Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where the house was. They stopped by the gate, and they start calling out for Peter. And at that moment, God's Spirit says to Peter, three men are looking for you. Now get up, go downstairs, and do not hesitate to go with them, for I, I have sent them. Here's my Reiki translation. Summary, really. God, God was orchestrating all of this. Cornelius' vision, Peter's vision, the meeting of the two, all of it. God says, I have sent them. He's behind this. So Peter goes down. He welcomes the three, three Gentiles into his house. They stay the night. The next morning, they, they go back together to Caesarea. Somewhere along the way, the meaning of his vision it dawns on Peter what it, what it meant. How do we know? Because when he greets Cornelius and, his, and all of his Gentile family and friends, Peter says this. He says, you are well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate with or even visit a Gentile. But, he says, God has shown me 
that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. And here's the critical lesson. Peter says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. And what is right? To embrace the good news of Jesus, to believe in him. Everyone who does, Peter says, receives, not earns, but receives forgiveness for sins through his name. Now, I think it's important we recognize how challenging this was for Peter. You know, as a Jewish person, he had been conditioned his entire life to see humanity as fundamentally divided between clean and unclean people, between Jew and Gentile. And his aversion to them, to Gentiles, to those who were racially and culturally different, was just a hard thing to overcome. I mean, certainly Jesus taught and modeled the opposite. Jesus hung out with, cared for, ministered to, showed compassion to everyone, Jew, Samaritan, Gentile, all alike. Peter had spent three years with him. Peter knew that, but still he wrestled with this issue. And even though at this point he seems to get it, overcoming his long-term prejudice was going to be an ongoing struggle for him. In fact, later on in the book, the Apostle Paul has to confront Peter, Peter about this because as the church continued to grow in its diversity, um, Peter would, you know, he would eat and drink and hang out with Gentile believers as long as, the, as long as there weren't any Jewish believers around. Because as soon as the Jewish believers around, he would ignore the Gentiles, stay away from them, hang out with only the Jewish believers and treat, treat the Gentiles as if they were second-class citizens. And the Apostle Paul calls him on it. He reminds Peter of the lesson. God does not show favoritism. Neither should we. And I tell you what, in my opinion... This is a lesson we in the church desperately need to revisit, grasp hold of, and apply. Because among us, as followers of Jesus, hate, prejudice, sexism, bigotry, discrimination, racism has absolutely no place. It has no place. And if and when it shows up in our lives, individually or corporately, the good news of Jesus meant for all people is tainted. In so many respects, the message is disqualified in the eyes of the world. And let's be honest about it, you know, just like Peter, some of us, probably all of us to one degree or another, have grown up with certain prejudices directed at people who are different from us. And those prejudices and the acts of discrimination that they inspire are pretty hard to overcome. And so the question for us is this, what prejudices do I have? What prejudices do you have? Which ones are you holding on to? See, the first step in dealing with them and overcoming them, I think, rests in grasping the fact that God does not show favoritism, neither should we. I mean, if God doesn't, what on earth gives us the right? And that's God's message, not just to Peter, but to all of us. You think about it. As Christians, one of the most memorized and quoted scripture verses of all time is what? John 3.16, right? Everybody knows it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That is the good news of Christianity in a nutshell. It is the plan of redemption summarized in one simple sentence. Simple yet profound. For God so loved who? One culture over another? One race over another? 
Jew over Gentile, African over Samaritan, white over black, Asian over Arab, rich over poor, educated over uneducated, man over woman, blue collar over white collar, me over you? No. There are no such distinctions. Therefore, don't you think it's time that we in the church as followers of Jesus as broken, imperfect, unworthy recipients of God's grace, don't you think it's time we start actually living the truth instead of just quoting it? If God would not let the Apostle Peter get away with his prejudices, why do you think he's okay with ours? He's not. Make no mistake, God does not show favoritism. God so loved the world that he gave all of us Jesus. And whoever, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Translation, the good news of God's grace in Jesus isn't just, for, isn't just good news for some people or offered, offered to certain people. It's good news offered to all people because we all need it. Let's pray. Our Father, I want to thank you for uh, this record of Cornelius and his life, his experience. And um, I, I couldn't help but see in him similarities between so many people today. Because he really was, he was a good person. He was a, he was a, a religious, generous, kind, disciplined religiously devout person. A person who believed in you, a creator God. And in so many ways, he's like others who walk our streets today. Just really good people who are, who are moral, who, who are generous, who are religious, who do believe that you, our God, exists. But also what makes them similar is this understanding, this belief that it's all about their good works and their efforts and their religious rituals. That that's, that's what matters most to you. And the message to Cornelius was pretty clear that although he was a good person, he needed more. His goodness was not enough because he wasn't perfectly good. None of us are. And that's hard for some of us to, to, to recognize and, and accept, but that's the truth. None of us are perfectly good all the time. And we have all at times turned away from you, our God, and we are all in need of transformation. We're all in need of your grace. We're all in need of a Savior. We're all in need of Jesus. No matter who we are, what we look at, look like, how we speak, the clothes we wear, it makes no difference to you whatsoever. That you love us equally and you have offered us forgiveness for sins in Jesus. And I pray, I pray that each of us in this room would recognize that in, in, in a new and fresh way. And that your love, is, as we experience it, as you pour it upon us, would be something that we bring to our world a world that desperately needs to hear about Jesus. And uh, 
And so we just, uh, in this moment, we, we're thankful, Lord. We want to say thank you for loving us. We who deserve, we who don't deserve it. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for Jesus. It's his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand, shall we? So those are words that are easy to sing, right? The question is, do we really believe them? Uh, I hope that you do, because it's true. Um, and being a Christian means that you understand that, but you kind of understand the, the bad news and the good news. The bad news is none of us are good all the time. We all fail. We fail God. We fail each other. We do dumb things. We make unhealthy choices things that God tries to keep us from for our protection. We do them anyway. None of us are good all the time. And therefore, we all need we all need forgiveness. We all need the grace of God. We all need Jesus. And believing that, believing in Him, and personally accepting Him as Savior, and that's what it means to be a Christian. And I hope you understand it. And if not, talk to someone you know who comes to Parkview. Let them share their story uh, with you about their, their faith in Jesus or following the service. Some of our prayer team folks will be down here in the front. You can come and talk with them. But uh, I hope you understand the difference between religion and Christianity. You know, I just, I really hope you understand it because it's significant. Um, I hope you come back next Sunday as we continue the study. It's, it's fascinating how the gospel of grace has been extended to Jewish people, Samaritans, African um, uh, a persecutor of the church and now to a, a, a Gentile soldier, a Roman. Next week we're going to see it go even further. It's going to go even further into the Greco-Roman world and uh, it happens in a place called Antioch and uh, it's a fascinating story what happens there and a lot of it revolves around one particular guy we haven't talked about yet. So come back, we're going to, we're going to take a look at, at him and, and what happens in Antioch. I think you'll find it fascinating and helpful. So uh, in the meantime, have a great week. Let me pray for you and then we'll be dismissed. How you love us, Lord. You love all of us. No matter who we are, where we're from, what we look like, walk like, talk like, dress like, it does not matter to you. You do not show favoritism. I pray that we would get that. And that reality would change how we live our lives, how we treat others. I pray that it would just, just smash and demolish Things like discrimination and racism and, uh, and bigotry and all the, all the ugliness of our world, all the things that have kept the church apart and se separated for so long, I pray that you would, at least in this community, among us, demolish those things, that we might be together in Jesus, that we might bring the news of your love and grace to our community, not just so we would do it with our words, but we would do it with our lives how we treat people, how we love them no matter what, because you do. And so I ask that you would give us the strength and the power by the work of your spirit to be that kind of people this week. May your hand of grace and strength and peace rest on your church today as we go. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for being here.